Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is the music artist, Jeremy Messersmith. Hailed as a Minnesota music hero by the Minneapolis Star Tribune, singer-songwriter Jeremy Messersmith got his start like most musicians, performing in coffee shops and recording songs in his basement. His first effort in 2006, The Alcatraz Kid, featuring quiet, often melancholic songs, drew the attention of Dan Wilson of Trip Shakespeare, Semisonic, who then produced Messersmith's follow-up, The Silver City, in 2008. With his subsequent releases, The Reluctant Graveyard and 2014's Heart Murmurs, Messersmith's reputation for elegant, literate songcraft continued to build nationally with acclaim from NPR, Time magazine, and an appearance on Late Night with David Letterman. In April 2017, Messersmith took an unexpected turn by publishing a songbook of ukulele music entitled 11 Obscenely Optimistic Songs for Ukulele, a micro-folk record for the 21st century and beyond, which he followed up with an 80-stop micro-tour of free pop-up concerts around the US. His newest effort, the orchestral pop record Late Stage Capitalism, was released in March 2018 on Glassnote Records. My conversation with Jeremy Messersmith was recorded over the phone while he tours the country. As this show airs, his next gig will be at the Reverb Lounge in Omaha on Friday, November 9th. Hi, Jeremy. Hello. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) How do you describe your music? I'm not entirely sure. I certainly don't have the skill to to do so myself. Uh, But let me ask you, how do you how do you describe your music? Well, I guess when I when people ask me to describe my music, and uh, it's maybe someone I I don't really want to go into a long conversation with. I just say that I'm a I'm a white dude play, who plays acoustic guitar, and that that usually kind of makes people not that interested in hearing <laughs> anything else about what I do. Uh, my head, I just I think of it as like indie folk or indie pop. That's that's, that's kind of it. I try not to be too pretentious about it. Like I, I try to take what I do very seriously, but try not to take uh, take myself all that seriously. I think that is something that is perhaps not not really knowing you, but that seems to be indicative of both your music and and dare I say you as a person. I, I want to say that your music evokes the complexities of optimism, but there is wit and fun and silliness. But it's also grounded, I think, in irony and an appreciation of sadness in life, too. Now, I don't know if that's a, an accurate description. Tell me if that's an accurate description. And if it is, is it also an accurate description of you? I think that's, uh, I think that's very fair and very accurate. That's probably more accurately described than I could describe it myself. But uh, it seems that in order to be making art, which is something that... Uh, you know, it kind of requires you to be true to yourself. And most people that I know, including musicians who write some of the saddest music ever, are, you know, they have a, a wide range of emotions. And I would like to think that my songs would represent kind of that whole emotional spectrum. And um, 
also like to think that I try to use all the tools available to me to convey ideas, whether it's irony or comedy or anything else, anything. I think you're talking about using a variety of tools to get across this emotional sentiment. Um, your new album, Late Stage Capitalism, has in places a late 50s, early 60s vibe. Um, for Purple Hearts, to avoid the song becoming, in your words, a giant bummer, uh, you say that you coated the song with a generous layer of 1960s orchestral schmaltz, which you find irresistibly euphoric. And, and so it does seem to me that, that you're really, really attentive in both your lyrics and your music to conjure a, a, a really nuanced array of deeply felt emotions. But that's how I feel. Is, is that your intention? Yeah. Uh, I always kind of err towards complexity and juxtaposing the sonic rapper of the song and the lyrical content is something that I, I, I very much enjoy. I do find the 50s and 60s schmaltz irresistible. It's the music that, uh, when I first started kind of listening to music when I was, uh, when I was a kid, that was the stuff that uh, always had an appeal to me. So it's still kind of like a, a throwback framework, if you will, that I, I just absolutely love. And uh, at the same time, you know, a lot of the lyrics for those songs, you know, back in, the, back in that time period, very much matched the uh, sonic template, if you will. And uh, and I just find it to be overwhelmingly saccharine. So uh, um, for me, it's kind of like uh, it's a little bit of the bitter with the sweet, kind of tempering a little bit. And uh, there's complexity there for people if they uh, if they if they care to hear it, you know. But I'm very happy with songs that sound joyous and optimistic and bubbly on on first listen. And if you're the kind of person that listens to lyrics, then hopefully there's some sweet stuff for you there too. You use the word saccharin, and I, it reminds me of the, the phrase about, um, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And exactly. I, well, so, so that seems to be resonant again in, in your music, and, and maybe you can describe late-stage capitalism in, in terms of an important message and, and perhaps one of tension and, and lost love and broken hearts, but also joy and happiness but you help yeah. us. You help us consume that because you've laying a sweetness over the top of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think I'd do any better than Dickens by saying that uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's kind of how I think of. Kind of how I think of the modern era. Uh, you know, we should be we should be happier and happier. Uh, life is better. Technology is better, and yet you know, we find that maybe people aren't any happier than they were 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, I think that's kind of kind of curious, and uh, I, I guess I like the, the mental umbrella or the lens of late-stage capitalism, if you will, if you start looking at modern life through, through that lens. You know, I think a lot of things make a lot more, a lot more sense, at least to me. And also, uh, you know, I was doing things, like while writing the album, doing things like, you know, buying a house, like really getting engaged, uh, I kind of wrote the song "Happy" after after having <laughs> purchased a new home, and uh, I was just like, "Man, is this, is this kind of it? Am I on the path to you know, wealth and happiness and all that?" And, uh, it was kind of a, a way for me to to uh, process what was going on in my life. Do you feel yeah. happy now you've bought the house? <laughs> well, I actually just sold the house, so. Uh, <laughs> I, 
And I lasted about I lasted about three years with the house, I guess. And I'm like, oh yeah, I feel way better without it. <laughs> So tell me, tell me more about late-stage capitalism, and perhaps a good place to start is, why the title, and, and what are some of the themes that you're trying to address musically through that album? I'm not sure exactly when I became aware of the idea of late-stage capitalism. It might have been, there's a, there's a subreddit called late-stage capitalism, and I think maybe that was one of the first places that I thought, but um, I guess I was intrigued by the idea of capitalism has been at least how it's been taught to me has been this, you know, amazing force for good in the world. And uh, the thing about it is that it's always looking for, it can work pretty well as long as there's like always like a new market to kind of go into. Once it doesn't have those new markets anymore, it kind of can turn inward. And then you have kind of people turned into, you know, opportunities to make money. You have like you know, an industrial complex. I'm not sure I touched on a whole lot of that, or at least it's, it's kind of a huge umbrella, but um, one of the tunes in particular was about the kind of, uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, Cory Doctorow, says that every complex system evolves parasites, and so I wanted to really write a tune about one of those, which is where the tune uh, Jim Baker came from. I guess some of the other themes, I think there's a, there's a kind of a loneliness uh, that kind of comes from some of the, some of the late-stage capitalism framework. And uh, I think that comes through in songs like, like Purple Hearts, you know, kind of when everything is a, a product and commoditized and, you know, you use an app to <laughs> have relationships with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's kind of very far removed from maybe how humans evolve to socialize. This is sounding real cerebral, by the way, <laughs> at least for me. I think, I think your <laughs> lyrics are quite cerebral. I, I think there is... Um, Part of your bio talks about um, your reputation for elegant literate songcraft. Oh. I know right. it sounds. Did I write that bio. <laughs> I, I, apparently, you did write this bio, which is what I would expect from a, a literate songcrafter. <laughs> so, oh my! Well, oh my! Well, I think your lyrics clearly are intelligent, but they're intelligent in a way that is capable of using humor and subversion and weaving it with the melody, too, to create this sort of full spectrum. Um, 
So before we keep talking about late-stage capitalism, why don't we talk a little bit about where your lyrics and, and the narratives you're trying to talk to, where, where do those lyrics emerge from? I would say that most of the time they emerge from a central idea. And uh, sometimes that's, you know, maybe uh, like an article I just read or, or an experience that I had. But I would say that I write from title first a lot of the time. And um, usually the indicator, like to me, that I have a good song idea you know, it isn't like a big eureka moment ever, like, like oh, that, you know, I'm going to write that in the song. Like, that's an amazing idea. It's usually, the thought I have in my head is, oh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> and then, uh, usually if something is a little bit funny, it means that maybe there's something, there's something under the surface, there's something that like, people don't acknowledge. And uh, I guess I find those little kind of things interesting and try to turn them into turn them into tunes. I try really hard to, to develop my ideas. Uh, you know, so things kind of like logically expand hopefully the idea unfolds throughout the song and you're rewarded for actually paying attention to the lyrics. Um, that's the attempt anyway. And I just spend a, a fair amount of time on on just the, the craft of songwriting and uh, you know, it's all very boring stuff like you know, I spend probably 90% of my time editing as opposed to writing, just making sure that everything is moving clearly and the, the logical structures are there, making sure the rhymes are good. There's, I don't think there's anything particularly magical about it. Uh, I think it might have something to do with, you know, I live in Minnesota, and uh, <laughs> songwriting is, is a great tool for, you know, when you're snowed in over the wintertime. You, you can spend all sorts of time just pouring over song lyrics. Uh, a, a previous guest on this show, David Philip Mullins, he's an author and a creative writing teacher. And one of the points he makes about writing is that you have to love editing and you have to be willing to spend yeah. time doing that. So do you think of yourself as a as a poet that also happens to write? You, you, you talk about the song rapper. You write the melody to wrap the, the poem in or, or is that not a way you think about this craft? I, I wouldn't think of myself as a as a poet, uh, yeah, just a straight-up songwriter, or maybe a, maybe a, just a writer. Um, poetry for me is like, <laughs> that is, that is a much, much harder form to, to work in, using only the music of the word. Uh, I mean, it, the easy thing about songwriting is that the music tells you, it gives you all of the emotional subtext that you need, so you can actually be a little bit drier and more simple and more plain when you're writing songs than I think could writing poetry. And uh, that kind of works for me as I'm kind of in, try to keep my lyrics sort of rooted in the, the here and now using pretty regular language. I think if I was writing poetry, I'd have to, I'd, I'd have to buy a thesaurus. <laughs> Said casually as we stared up through the trees. The branches bent, shivered in the winter breeze, snowflakes falling on our cheeks. And we forgot all about the bitter cold, walked till we couldn't feel our toes. Stopped on the lake. 
I'm going to pick up on one particular song from Late Stage Capitalism. It's uh, Postmodern Girl. And for me, it playfully conjures something European, uh, of course. It reminds me... Oh, yeah. Well, and listening to it, you know, there's, there's this little sensibility for me of French new wave cinema of that period. And, and yet it also speaks, I think the song speaks to something quite modern, love, loss, uh, happiness, cultural divides, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, one specific question from this show's co-producer, Marion, was about whether anybody else has ever suggested to you that another song, It's Only Dancing, is like a John Hughes film, but contained in that song. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I felt like It's Only Dancing was uh, is, is basically that. A John Hughes film uh, put, the, put the music with uh, three acts. What's Modern Girl was really fun. Um, I, I guess <laughs> I've always kind of wanted to... I, I kind of like it when uh, you, know, you have a, a band from like the 60s or something trying to do basically kind of like a low budget like a rock band trying to do like a good bossa nova or something like that was kind of our approach going into uh doing postmodern girl and it was oh man it was a lot of fun love the feel of it and it's very funny uh for a lot of people that's their favorite song on the on the album i think maybe because it was it's a little it's a little different than everything else and also there's a there's a big chunk in in french by charlotte sabary i will say i will say I will say we don't play it live all that often, although uh, we might do it on the, uh, on the uh, our little Midwest one here. But if you know anyone in Omaha who'd like to guest, uh, guest French speak over that thing, uh, let me know. This, this might be stretching it a little bit, but we just talked about It's Only Dancing being uh, yeah. a, a John Hughes film in three parts in the song and talked about elements of postmodern girl and late stage capitalism also having this kind of cinematic sweep and I'm you've been producing records since 2006 with the Alcatraz Kid and, and you've been writing and producing and performing since then is it too much to say that more than just music there is a sort of cinematic or um, theatrical sweep to the musical work that you've produced yeah I think so I think what's probably coming out through all of these tunes is that uh, somewhere deep inside me is a very frustrated screenwriter uh, who, who has never never written a screenplay or a movie in his life? But um, I feel like uh, just, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a film fan, and I feel like from the very early age I was just imprinted with three act structure, and it just feels so embedded in it. It's a framework that just feels very comfortable. I understand it. It's a great way to kind of explore ideas and, and tell a story. So I feel like that probably creeps up into my song. Uh, my kind of songwriting mentor, uh, Dan Wilson, um, and I were having a conversation about pop songs, 
and you know a lot of my tunes have a beginning and a middle and an end, the first act, second act, third act. If you listen to most pop songs, they kind of take place in what he calls the ever present now, uh, where it almost doesn't matter if you if you you know tune in in the second verse or the first verse or the bridge. It's all kind of like happening right at the same time, and there there maybe isn't like a oh I don't know what's happening in the song. You can kind of hop in at any point. But, at least for me, I have I have kind of a, a thing for react structure. How intentional are you about social issues in your work? Um, and there are some beautiful, almost so lighthearted, you might not take them seriously, but a song, for example, like We All Do Better When We All Do Better um, and Happy yeah. uh, and Once You Get to Know Us from uh, the album Late yeah. Stage Capitalism, they all speak to something really, really serious. And I, I wonder how intentional yeah. you are about, about social justice and, and commentary on our modern world. Sure. Uh, I think that all music is political, and I think that uh, just because something is, you know, uh, I mean, it's very funny. Corporate media dominates everything, and corporate media wants everything to be kind of stripped of context and kind of reassembled like a like a hamburger because it's easier to sell that way. You don't have anything that maybe offends anybody, but I think the songwriting is an amazing tool song are an amazing vehicle for empathy. I mean, when you're singing a song and somebody's singing it, I mean, they are, you're, you are in someone else's shoes. And I, I think that is incredibly, uh, incredibly important. Um, 
I've been I try not to ever be preachy. Like the moment you're being preachy, you're you know you're writing something in second person, you're telling people what to do. I don't think that's truly helpful. Like I have a hard time with like second person songs just for you know. Uh, I love Imagine by John Lennon, but sometimes it's you know he's basically just telling he keeps telling you to do something. I think there's a way to to write political songs are amazing and uplifting and bring people together and, and all of this. Thing. Uh, that's what I kind of try to endeavor to do. Like, definitely, I have a worldview and an opinion, and I hope that comes across in in songs, and I hope it comes across as something true and something genuine. Who do you listen to, and where do you find your um, maybe not even your inspiration, but but when you need some uh, emotional nourishment yourself from music, who who do you turn to? Yeah. You know, I, I don't have like a like one or two staples maybe that I go to. I feel like it's always a, a journey, and it's usually it's usually somebody new and kind of unexpected. Uh, there's, um, there's a few things I've been listening to that I've been really enjoying. One is uh, an artist by the name of Bedouin, the singer songwriter based in LA via Saudi Arabia, and I just absolutely love her album. Thank you fantastic and, and really poetic. Oh, this is maybe kind of this is maybe kind of strange. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this person's name, but um, there's a classical pianist by the name of Vikinger Olafsson who did a bunch of um, uh, box music on piano and I just think it's the most incredible sounding thing. It feels just so pure and uh, not heavy in a way that, that box can kind of sound. It feels like so lively and, and full of energy and just beautiful. Carrie and Lowell by Sufjan Stevens is, uh, has been a big one. Also, A Moon-Shaped Pool by Radiohead is maybe my favorite Radiohead album. And uh, I've, whatever, I've been a fan of theirs forever. They've been my longtime favorite band, but I just think that's great. Mm. Oh, also, uh, John Prine. Uh, I've been listening to a bunch of John Prine and just kind of, uh, I'd say if there was one songwriter I'm kind of trying to aspire to be, it would be Mr. John Five. Late night call and I'm at your door. Teenage tears on the kitchen floor. I pull you close, hold my breath, feel your heartbeat through your summer dress. Shuffle our feet slowly to the stereo. Your boyfriend suddenly appears If your father comes home and finds us here You and I, we won't need an alibi It's only dancing It's only dancing
I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is the music artist Jeremy Messersmith. My conversation with Jeremy Messersmith was recorded over the phone while he tours the country. You touched there a little bit on the business of music. Yeah. I'd like to follow up on that because, for example, sure. your last album uh, in 2017 was 11 obscenely optimistic songs for ukulele, a micro-folk record yes. for the 21st century and beyond. And my understanding <laughs> is... <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I, mean, I, still, I still laugh anytime somebody says the full title. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my understanding of that song is that you, you released it, you released it as a songbook, and, and then you subsequently released the audio and it was available for digital download. And in many ways, it yeah. seems to be counter the narrative of what makes good business. And so I, I want yeah. to invite you maybe just to talk a little bit about your approach to being a successful artist in, in a business world, while at the same time being quite unusual. Yeah. Uh, well... It felt a little crazy going into my record label in New York City and <laughs> pitching them on the idea of a ukulele songbook that we literally give away for free. Uh, it was uh, it was an interesting an interesting day. I, I showed up at their offices with a PowerPoint presentation, which uh, according to them, I was only the second artist to ever give a PowerPoint presentation. The other one was Childish Gambino. Um, but I pitched them on the idea. Uh, I wanted to do a folk album, like a, but a true folk album, one that you know hopefully the songs um, would be ones that people wouldn't listen to passively, but would instead play and maybe hear for the first time, uh, for the first time with their own voices, with their own instruments, playing these songs with their own hands. The experience of playing songs is way different than listening to a song, and uh, there's something about it when you play it and you perform a song, like I know like when I do covers and I play them for a few years, something about them kind of like just seeps inside you, it becomes part of your musical DNA, so to speak. Um, I wanted to try releasing something under a completely different, I guess, media ecosystem. There's kind of like the big media ecosystem, which is, you know, you, uh, you have like a carefully polished hit single. And, you know, you push that to radio, you have, like, a very nice music video to go along with that. You hope it kind of, like, spreads around. Hopefully it grows organically. And um, I wanted to try something that acknowledged some other systems, which is, uh, I mean, people think of folk music as kind of, like, old white guys with acoustic guitars or banjos or something. Um, but I think that folk music is actually super live, and I think YouTube is kind of the center of it. I mean, there are... So many, so many people uploading just videos of themselves every day, like millions of them playing songs on ukulele, which is apparently the most popular instrument in the world. It's super easy to play. It's very cheap, but that's why I chose the ukulele for, for the album. Um, it was really fun to see it kind of blossom. I think people were just ready to, to do something. I mean, so literally there were people debuting, you know, my new album, for me and having a great time and oftentimes playing it way better than, than I ever could uh, on a variety of instruments uh, piano, guitar there was somebody did like a, an awesome version of uh, uh, Everybody Gets a Kitten but done in the style of the uh, uh, the Sex Pistols 
uh, <laughs> really, really, really great. It's so good. Um, so I try to be conscious of uh, when I release a project, like, like where does it live? How can like how does it flourish? And um, I mean, even touring with it. Sorry, I mean this is the most long-winded answer of all time. But uh, touring behind it was was very fun as well and super unexpected. You know, uh, I remember playing a show in Pittsburgh just at a park and having like several hundred people show up. And it turns out that the ukulele songbook like got spread all around the world through these very like informal ukulele circles that are everywhere. So uh, I had the Steel City Pickers all all show up and we all just played through the song together. It was absolutely great. More people than I've ever had at a show in Pittsburgh. So I think there's something there. I just don't think that most artists, most musicians at least that I know, think of that as a vibrant sort of living community in a way to make a living as an artist. We all do better when we all do better. That means everyone. All genders and colors just love one another. We'll have so much fun We all do better when we all do better That means everything The lakes and the rivers, the streams and the critters All that lives and breathes We all do better when we all do better that means everywhere So go tell your neighbors and even the strangers There's so much to share You mentioned music DNA and uh, yeah. I want to uh, unravel your DNA a little bit in that regard So sure. your, your Wikipedia page tells me that um, you began yeah. playing in church, but but tell me more yeah. about your upbringing and and how you yeah. came to discover your own musical DNA. Growing up, uh, I grew up uh, in like a Assemblies of God church uh, with a very active music program in rural Washington, and I remember music like was at least from maybe the time I was a small child till. At the age of like ten or twelve, wasn't really like a wasn't a passive thing. Like, I mean, yes, we listen to music, but music was the thing you did with a bunch of people on Sunday mornings and on Sunday nights and on Wednesday nights. And um, I feel like you know we we sang lots of hymns, we sang like uh, praise and worship choruses and things. I think that my sense of harmony was developed by really listening to the church ladies in front of me and, you know, I still remember kind of marveling about what was happening and not really quite understanding. You could sing notes that weren't the melody and it sounded good somehow. Um, things like that. When I was a teenager, uh, I got into uh, a bunch of, I guess you'd call it contemporary Christian music and also oldies. There was an oldies station, uh, oldies 95.7 uh, in rural Washington, where I where I grew up, and I remember um, really, really loving it and kind of like learning every single song they kind of had on their rotation, learning to sing like that. And I think that's where most of my sensibilities still come. I I still absolutely that's the music I connected to when I was a teenager, and it's still the music that I kind of like to make, which is probably why I'm a bit of a 
I'm a bit of a sonic throwback, if you will. Picking up on that theme of throwback and, and maybe a little nostalgia, I yeah. listened to the song Ghost, and it, it reminds me of my own personal trips back to Canterbury in the southeast of England, where I was born. Mm -hmm. And um, whenever I go back to visit family, I drive to the housing estate, um, and um, mm -hmm. I stop at outside the house in which I was born and uh, in which I was raised. Wow. And, um, wow. Hey, hang on. You were born in a house? Yes, I was. Wow. Um, wow. So, wow. but but, but the reason why I, I tell you this is is just because that idea of of going to stop at a place that has some uh, resonance or echo of something. Um, I, I recognize that in in the song Ghost, and I'm borrowing from an interview you did with um, John Lurson, yeah. uh, Rolling Stone magazine. And um, mm -hmm. yeah. you talk a little bit about th this being a place that has a nostalgic connection for you, and it's it, yeah. it's in Omaha. The, the 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 place that you stop at this yeah. this place you stop at is in Omaha. Um, so you are on tour right now, and you'll be coming to Omaha yeah. on Friday, November 9th and performing at the Reverb Lounge. Um, mm -hmm. And I. I want you maybe just to talk a little bit about the background to that song Ghost and, and maybe whether you're going to uh, revisit this this place again. My parents grew up near Omaha and uh, uh, technically they, they grew up in Council Bluff, but just across the, just across the river. Um, so Omaha and Council Bluff was a place like we would uh, only visited there a few times, I remember, as a kid, but that was kind of where where the grandparents were and all of that. And um, I wrote the song Ghost after kind of vision, visiting uh, my childhood home in uh, in, in Washington uh, State, out in the Tri-Cities. Um, but then I got to thinking about my, got to thinking about my folks and what it was like for them moving kind of far away. And yeah, <laughs> you're right in that it is a, it is a nostalgic, kind of like a, can't really ever, you know, uh, come home again, kind of a song. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I hope that you know, by the time the third verse uh, rolls around, there's there's some reason for optimism. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's you know acknowledging there are other places to go, and uh, uh, you know it's not always the darkest night, and sometimes the night uh, sunlight can be a nice refresher. One more night in Omaha Bus stop just before the dawn Cold wind followed me somehow Through parking lots and shopping malls Rinse my thoughts in alcohol Black clouds rolling over for me
You sound like a, a wonderful human being, um, and and it's not just it, it's not me just saying that. It's apparently you were hailed by the Minneapolis Star Tribune as a Minnesota music hero. Um, oh, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> so, so how what what are your um, what are your ambitions, uh, and, and how do you balance those ambitions with what is an obvious? intellect, sense of humor, a certain self-deprecation and humility. What are you aspiring to? Oh, boy, there's a lot. I mean, I've, uh, contrary to the, 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 the hero narrative, uh, you know, I, spend, I spend a lot of time just working on myself, and I, I spend a bunch of time trying to think about how to be better, how to be kinder to myself, to, to other people. As career ambitions, uh, anything that I was ambitious for, I achieved a long time ago. Uh, I, I'm super lucky, uh, you know, I'm literally traveling around on a tour bus playing music for people every night. That's a, that is an absolute, absolute dream. Um, the only maybe creative ambitions I have, I mean, those, that's where I'm maybe the most ambitious. I never have goals like, oh, I want to sell out Red Rocks or play on Letterman or something like that. Uh, those are all kind of like external metrics. The only ones I care about are, am I making art that is true and genuine, something that connects with people, something that's not like junk food music, but something that people can really healthy digest. Um, I feel like, I feel like as an artist and songwriter, like my job is to literally dive into myself, you know, my dive into my subconscious, dive into my past, and it's I'm there to work through work through things and then kind of bring back and share what I've learned and um, hopefully that just saves other people time in their own in their own journey hopefully there's a, a song that uh, maybe helps people out um, so uh, as far as stuff I kind of have maybe in, in the future I've got a few um, few albums of, uh, I'm, I'll be working on over the next year so I'll have a few I think I'll have a bunch of releases maybe even a live album we're talking about doing uh, in a couple of weeks actually as listeners know you uh, we're recording this interview by phone and you're currently on the west coast as part of your tour um yeah t- tell us a little bit about the experience of of this tour and maybe what surprised you about it so far oh uh, yeah uh well this is the first um there are a bunch of firsts for me in this uh this is the first bus tour that I've ever been on. I've been opening up for a gentleman by the name of Eric Hutchinson. And that's been a, that has been just a real pleasure and delight. I mean, usually I'm uh, very used to <laughs> hauling myself all around the, all around the country in order to play for people. And this is, uh, kind of leaves a bunch of time for songwriting and for, uh, sightseeing. I feel like I'm actually getting to see a bunch more of the country than I ever have before. Because normally I just wouldn't have, wouldn't have the time to, to pop and gawk. 
it's also been very fun playing for audiences that, for the most part, don't know my material at all. And uh, it's, it's so satisfying to see some of the more humorous elements in my never come through. First off, the audiences have been exceptionally polite. Um, but seeing people, seeing people laugh and generally have a, have a great time has been really rewarding, too. And you'll be in Omaha soon. Uh, any particular expectations yeah. or hopes for uh, for that particular evening? Oh, I'm I'm just very happy when people show up for <laughs> for a first show. So uh, I can promise a rollicking good time. I try. I will. I will likely not be too incredibly too incredibly mopey. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I didn't overpromise anything. Else, but, uh, but I'm very excited to play and. Uh, I think the last couple of shows that I've played in Omaha have actually been uh, house concerts, which have been, which have been really fun. I do have, I still have some family out there in uh, in Omaha as well, so I'm gonna try to try to round them up to come out to the show. We are excited yeah. uh, to hear what uh, a few songs from late stage capitalism that you have described as a a decadent orchestral pop record. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> yes. I, w- I wanted to, you know, it, it should be like, uh, you know. Uh, eating dessert at, like, a very nice vegan restaurant, you know, where uh, it's absolutely delicious, but, you know, hopefully it's not going to stop your heart at some point. I would like to say I, th- I think in some ways your music does stop our hearts, and I'm, yeah. I'm grateful oh. for that. That is, that is incredibly sweet of you. Thank you. I don't care for fireworks So-called funny things I don't need a fancy car Diamond rings Just give me a rainy day With nothing much to do Cause everything is magical Whenever I'm with you Anywhere is paradise, anytime is right Every song's a symphony, pure delight To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Whenever I'm with you Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. on a star I believe that love can heal broken hearts I am so grateful for you making some time to chat with us Uh, we're very excited to see you here at the Reverb Lounge on November 9th it's been a pleasure to be in conversation with you thank you so much thank you it has been an absolute pleasure thank you for the thoughtful question I appreciate it
That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.